Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to MedHeads. Today we have one of our regular speakers, Marie Eisma. Hello, Marie. How are you? I'm really, really well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So I thought today we'd talk about trauma and how it relates to substance use and substance use disorders. What are your initial thoughts on that? Well, certainly from my um, clinical experience, trauma has such a... Um, it's often a driving force for the clients, certainly, that I've used in trying to manage trauma symptoms. So substance abuse has been such a, um, a big factor in people trying to at least not either remember what they've experienced or try to turn the volume down on what they've experienced. And I've certainly seen if they haven't had trauma um, to begin with as far as them getting into substance use, my experience has been certainly that they've had exposure, um, certainly through their uh, drug and alcohol journey. So there's really a bi-directional relationship, isn't there? Because trauma causes substance use and substance use causes trauma. It's certainly been my experience, yes, for sure. Yeah. So why do people who are traumatized use substances? So I know for a lot of my clients, the, the escapism, the capacity to be numbed, the capacity to not have to think, to not have to remember, to not have to sort of, I guess, inhabit their bodies. Um, it's, I guess, the ultimate form of escaping and numbing. Um, even if the sensations of the drug use might not be going on, the preoccupation around obtaining, scoring, keeping up to speed with who's, you know, been done by the police, who's um, you know, which deal has gone out of business or something like that, that's often a pretty uh, full-time activity to sort of stay on top of. So I think there's a, a, a number of reasons why um, substance abuse and trauma and how it all sort of all entwines from certainly from what I've seen in my work. And do you think there's a, an underlying vulnerability? Because not everyone who is traumatised uses substances. No, Not everyone true. who is traumatized has or suffers from the ongoing psychological ill effects from trauma. So, for instance, if we're looking at PTSD, every, you know, not everyone who experiences a major traumatic event, a life-threatening event, actually will develop PTSD. And not That's everyone correct. who develops PTSD will then go on to use substances to, heart, to, um, to, to, to take away the pain or to take away that suffering. Mm -hmm. Why is that, do you think? Look, I think it's a lot to do with uh, the uh, internal resources people have got when, you know, maybe at the ageing stage that a trauma happens. Uh, I know for a lot of clients, um, you know, the connection they've got with family, the capacity for family to respond um, and know how to, like I know I worked in the, in the, in the, section, the sector of um, sexual trauma for, for a number of years and... You know, families that would actually go and seek out support um, were often the ones that were sort of indicating to family members or to their to the survivor or victim that you know this is okay and we can talk about this. But for some other people, um, and this is just from my observation, 
if they've come to find out that a child or an adolescent has been harmed in some way, it sometimes stirs up their own trauma reactions and that can be too difficult for the parent to actually have to deal with. So they may uh, come up with comments like, well, I survived it, I'm okay, you should be able to too. So, you know, it's it's so multi-layered and it's, it's, it's really quite complex. So what you're saying is that the response to trauma is determined by childhood experiences and in particular childhood trauma and that in itself is or how people recover from that is determined in some way by the positivity of the level of engagement of their caregivers. So I know we're going down a little bit of an alley here but I've got to ask you this question. Why is it and I think you've alluded to it, but let's talk a little bit more. Why do some parents or caregivers acknowledge childhood trauma, whereas others bury it, ignore it? I've got patients who have got significant trauma, significant psychological comorbidity, and significant yeah. substance use, who yeah. were sexually abused by their uncles, whose mothers mm. said it didn't happen. Yes. Why does that happen? Why, why is there a frank denial of my my experience has been where where uh, where trauma has been denied or where a parent is actually um so there's a couple of things that, that i'm just going through my clinical <laughs> experience first of all uh because if a person has experienced trauma themselves then there can be the cloak of denial is so is so all-encompassing that they will flat out deny it so if if somebody does make reference that they're um brother sexually assaulted their child they the parent may go no I, I can't sit with that because it it's uh if they've got a trauma history themselves it means they have to then confront what's happened to them and i've seen it time and time and time again where it's like it didn't happen so if it, if i don't acknowledge that it happened in you then i don't have to sit with it with the fact that it happened to me um or they just right. don't know how to they can't they can't reconcile that uh, the other thing I've seen happen when it comes to, especially in the area of sexual assault, is where, ironically, the victim survivor will think that it's happened to them, therefore they're somehow keeping other potential victim survivors safe by making sure, well, okay, if it's happening to me, then the perpetrator isn't going to be able to be harming anyone else, which is really noble in its in its um in its appearance but the chances are that the the offenders will be doing it to other people i've also seen intergenerationally where if a um say a you know a 12 or 13 year old girl has been sexually abused by her father then her mother goes on to uh, start up another relationship and where the second person ends up being a perpetrator there seems to be this belief that then if that person then goes to have children that the person who's perpetrated the sexual assault will stop and not do it to their own to the children that they go on to have. Um, it's this it's this unbelievable thing that that happens where they just think, oh well, it happened to me. It, it's not going to happen to the next generation. Therefore, they just kind of dismiss any potential risk. It's I know it sounds like a bit of a phenomenon, but it actually happens. So why do people dismiss the risk? Is it is it because they I suppose I'm, what I'm really asking is why do people put their head in the sand when they're confronted with a crisis 
Generally, why this... do people put their head in the sand? Is, 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 I suppose, is, is it a defense mechanism? Is denial uh, an appropriate defense? Well, a, a defense mechanism <laughs> that is being used in this situation. I would absolutely say yes, even though like yeah. when we come around the flip side, we go, well, how could that happen? But it does happen. Yeah. It, and as I said, in the instances happen, where yeah. there's where there's intergenerational stuff that's gone on, it you know when people will then say, oh, but then I found out that my daughter, you know, was being harmed by the um, the granddad. It's yeah. it's like astonishing to them. They somehow seem to think that this um, sexual um, uh, abuse somehow has a has a, a duration or a, a time frame that all of a sudden someone just stops doing it, um, which yeah. can leave people really kind of um, disillusioned and very upset when they come to realise that then another generation has then been impacted. So here's a here's a question which you may or may not want to answer: Is can a leopard change its spots? Can a perpetrator of sexual abuse stop? <sighs> you may not want to answer that question. <laughs> uh, look, I. I have seen a few different experiences where I've had, say, 16-year-old perpetrators of sexual assault, um, ex you know, share with me extreme remorse. Uh, I've, I've seen them, you know, almost um, be their own judge and juror where they've, they've turned around and, and declared and never got into relationships. They've lived very transient lifestyles. A lot of them, again, have actually used substances to try to manage the fact that they have committed such a, you know, a, an awful offence to some to some person. I've seen. Um, I I remember when I did my training, they were talking about sexual offenders, um, sort of, you know, in the same. <laughs> believe it or not, they were using the same sort of model of that you know, that maintenance, that relapse prevention stuff, and they were applying it right. also to sexual offences, uh, sexual offenders. So the, you're referring to the cycle of change by... To the cycle of change, yeah. and De Clemente. And De Clemente, yeah. yes, that's right. Yeah. So, and So within that cycle of change, there's always the potential for relapse. Yes, yes. So there's always the potential for relapse back into perpetrating behaviour. Yeah, and that's, I guess there's, there's a, a very significant aspect of vulnerability in that. But I do know that in a lot of the videos and that that I've watched where people who, especially a, a child sex offenders where I've watched them interviewed, their cognitive distortions around their beliefs around what's happening to the fact that they can do that to children is like gobsmacking. Like it just leaves me well, going. Tell us. <laughs> Oh, things like, you know, um, this is how we show love to children. This is, um, you know, that how they would actually go around grooming children, like how they would groom vulnerable, vulnerable children. Like it's really quite, it's not opportunistic sometimes. It's, it's really quite well thought out. They, they will seek out the child that's uh, perhaps got the family um, chaos or the family, you know, that's in a lot of destabilisation. The, the child that's potentially quite quiet, who looks like they're not going to speak or talk or um, reveal what's going on. So it's it was. I remember watching it, feeling really, really quite unsettled at the how calculating and how well thought out the whole process actually is. And I, in all fairness, the the ones that I've watched was the complete lack of lack of remorse and lack of any awareness that what they're doing is harmful to children.
Yeah. Lack of empathy, I think, is the predicator of uh, antisocial personality disorder. Yeah, and, and there is no empathy. Mm. There is no, or, or as I said, their distortions are so uh, unbelievably fixed, such as, you know, uh, children want this. This is how we show love. They've got the rights, you know, <laughs> they've got the right to choose this when they haven't even got a fully developed adult brain. Like there's just a lot of, you know, uh, serious gaps in their, in their belief system that's very yeah. unshakable. So tell me this. Why do you, you've seen women go from one abusive relationship to another abusive relationship to another mm -hmm. abusive relationship? Why does that happen? Is it just coincidence My, or is there some kind of self-sabotage going on? I often wonder, you know, whether there's these... Um, so some people, you know, we know that... Well, my experience has been that usually within the six, first six to 12 to 18 months in, in a relationship, you know, usually it's easier for someone to put their best foot forward. And I, I'd love to know your view on this too, Fergal. Um, you know, when somebody first meets somebody, we've got all these lovely chemicals running through our body, which really actually isn't that dissimilar to, uh, to substances anyway, the way that our own bodies can create these woohoo chemicals when we feel like we're in love, you know, all the um, oxytocin and all those other lovely chemicals. And I think some people chase that same thing or they're chasing the belief that somehow they can get it right this time. It's going to be different this time. And in the, I also wonder too that sometimes people step out of this sort of situation that they think was intolerable, and they've moved into something else that might tick a few other boxes, but it's other, it's got its other deficits. And then there just seems to be this kind of constant calibration of, oh well, it's not as bad as this, or it wasn't as bad as that, and they kind of again using those sort of justifications. That's certainly been my observation in the experience with women. Sometimes it's a big mm. self-esteem thing. Sometimes, especially when I've worked with, um, and I've worked with many women who have got histories of uh, being sexually assaulted, being sexually abused, and then they've gone on to potentially work in um, the sex industry. So they've either worked as, mm. um, you know, erotic or exotic dancers, um, or they've worked off in, and sorry, worked in the area of prostitutions and stuff like that. So a lot of it, you know, you touched on before about um, self-worth and guilt and shame and all of that. And I think there's a connection with that very much so. It's almost like See, if, if they declare themselves as unlovable, then yeah. it's kind of like that is the mindset. That And, of course, what will they attract? They're likely to attract somebody who, who equally will uh, facilitate that script that they've got in themselves anyway. So what you're saying then is there is a certain amount of self-sabotage in the, in the fact that people who are vulnerable choose partners who are going to prey on them. That's essentially I think it, I think it, I think it's I think it's unconscious. It's a, certainly not an intentional. Yeah. I don't know anyone well, who walks up not. and puts up a no, they don't pull up a billboard saying, Hey wanted, come here, I want some yeah. trauma. But I yeah. do believe it's part of the cycle unless we actually really look at the mm. the way that we put boundaries in, the way that we, you know, the little things start getting left to slide and people don't own their truth and then all of a sudden they're in this in this experience where they haven't put down firm, you know, boundaries. Um, but has that been your experience in what you've seen too, Fergal? Like I'm, well, I'm curious I to think, know from your I, perspective. Yeah, I think there is a complex interplay between low self-efficacy, low self-esteem mm -hmm. and um, unmet need. Mm 
and validation. Mm. I think I think a lot of predators have de- hi- highly developed skills in in projecting validation, mm. which I think I think is particularly a, a, an attractive quality in people who are who are looking for external sources of validation. And I think it all goes very well until the predator then comes across an unmet need and then all it all just goes into chaos and abuse and trauma, etc. Mm. I mean, you know, some of the most charming people I know are people with antisocial personality disorder. Oh, very much so. And, so and that, they can that, make somebody feel like a million dollars. Exactly, if, exactly. If they're already feeling from that deficit. And, and that's where, exactly. you know, whenever we're doing work with, with survivors or people who are either leaving abusive situations is really around, and, and it's a very difficult concept for a lot of people to get their head around. And, that, and, and it sounds confrontational, but the reality is that no one's coming to save anybody. And the best relationship that we can ever really start to form is with ourselves Mm. instead of walking around with this kind of bucket that needs to be filled by other people there's this kind of paradigm shift that we really need to be encouraging people to get which is that people actually need to be able to put themselves first and of course then we get into this big battle of oh well then you're just a selfish you know you're you're selfish it throws into Mm. a lot of beliefs around what does it mean to be you know the stereotypical images of of gender but really, when we walk around thinking like we should be actually getting people that just simply enhance our world, not fill it, not complete it, and not be our other half, which is this kind of mindset, yeah. oh, I found my other half. Yeah. Yeah, there's an idealized dependency, I think, that is going on there as well. I, I, this is what I say to a number of people that um, happiness has to come from within. You cannot have... No, you cannot expect anyone else to give you or provide you with happiness. It, it is something that is, has got to come from within. And really, unless you have this, this internal locus of happiness, this internal locus of control, you are vulnerable to being preyed on by those who understand how to feed you validation. I couldn't have said it better. That is precisely... You certainly in the work that I do with people, you're right. If if people are walking around with the "please fill me up" sign, it's essentially it's going to leave. It's going to throw the scales out. But it's hard yeah. because people have got. It, it seems to be this this thing that. And if you take it even back to you know the stories and the um, the books that you know, well, girls certainly grew up. I certainly grew up with it in my time. Is the you know the Rapunzel being saved from someone while she's up in the tower? You know yeah. the Cinderella, the Snow White. There, yeah. you know, thank goodness, I think there's been a bit of an awareness around what kind of very subtle messages are we sending to to people, especially particularly women, uh, that yeah. we're going to be saved by some some person on a white horse, and it's it, it sets this um, this unmet need, and it sets up an expectation that I think leaves exactly for like you said those with sort of antisocial personality traits or if not a disorder marching on in they're usually the ones that are on the horse exactly yes <laughs> so we we really have digressed <laughs> we were going to be talking about substance use disorder and how this interacts with trauma but where do you see trauma in that relationship between a perpetrator and, and a victim and where do you see substance misuse in that space for me the, for the I'd often say it's the experience of shame, the, sh- the feelings of guilt. And ironically, it's that 
I knew it's it's almost one of the things I've I've been sort of become very aware of is when people beat up on themselves for the fact that they turned a blind eye to their inner knowing. Ironically, it's that I I knew something was wrong, but I didn't want to. I, I wanted to dismiss it. I should have known better. All the writing was on the wall. I discounted myself. I discounted my own perception on things. I disregarded my my real, you know, true facing north north compass. Like that's the that's the irony of what comes out in a lot of the work that I do with people, and right. that's what I think a lot of people so, get stuck on because they don't trust themselves after that. Is that where the guilt comes on, and the sense of personal responsibility for others' abuse? Is that where it comes from? Um, I'm responsible it's, it's, for being abused because I didn't do X, Y, and Z, or I didn't oh, recognize yeah. X, Y, and Z. Yeah, and look, in trauma work, we, we often know that there are certain belief systems that, you know, come under the category of things like, you know, I'm responsible, I'm not safe, I'm vulnerable, and there's sort of a cluster of different um, beliefs, belief statements that sit with that. And often that links back to beliefs that were formed in early childhood. So in some ways it becomes like a an affirming, oh, here we go again. See, this is what happened when I was five or this is what happened when I was seven. This is all very familiar. So if those same um, core beliefs or those same um, perceptions gets, get uh, start to become resurfaced, it can become again that reaffirming, oh, see, this is what's always going to happen. And it's not always the case, but we need to be able to be really aware of what are the what are those driving cognitions that are that are feeding this. One of the concepts that I think about in terms of the ability to say no to drugs is resilience, mm. Mm. personal efficacy, and internal locus of control. And we do know that people who have been the victims of abuse as children lack resilience. Mm. So I wonder how much of, of, of substance misuse in the context of trauma is a result of the trauma itself or really rather as a result of the lack of resilience. I'd say there's there a direct a, relationship. I think you, you, you're touching on something you know, quite accurate. I think that like in my clinically with the experience of trauma, so the stuff around resilience and that sense of not, you know, either not feeling worthy, not feeling good in themselves, seeking that somehow their happiness is going to be attached to somebody else. Mm. I think that becomes part of the thing that goes in the pot. Then we get the trauma that's come from the relationships that have added to another um, another mixture of that incorporating. The other thing mm. I wanted to say also is that, you know, through the journey of substance abuse, the trauma can also occur from even the loss of people who have been in this in the in the circle with people who have used substances so people who have had to you know through people who have died through misadventure people who have taken their own lives uh, the trauma the, the even the the trauma of you know when someone hasn't paid back a, a drug debt and then we've got more you know again we've got even more trauma so it, it's this kind of sensory overload of so many different things and if it's not personally experienced, it's vicariously experienced because of people that people know within the circle. Or if it's not that, it's where so, they've been potentially abused in custody or where there's been trauma in actual, while they've been incarcerated. And I suppose this brings, 
you're, you're, we, we've, we've discussed so much about the, the multi-layers of trauma, and I suppose this mm -hmm. really highlights what I say to people. I don't say, why did you use the substance? I say, I don't, I don't, yeah, what, neither do I. I say, what happened to you? Mm. Because I, I, I think almost, I, I think there is, I think I see substance misuse almost as a, as a reactive symptom to, to trauma, as basically. That's you know, right. It, and I know, keep going. I mean, I, I know that the, the, there, are other, there are people potentially watching this that would suggest, well, actually, you know, there's, there's all of the neurobiology, there's the craving, there's the neuroadaptation. And yes, but I, and I understand that. But on, on a psychosocial level, uh, to, to go back to the very beginning of what we said, I see substance use as an escape from pain, the pain of trauma on many, many levels. And I think that the discussion that we've had so far has been a very valuable exercise in outlining the levels of trauma that you can mm. get. Yeah. So, so what happened answer, to you? That's what I say. And you know, when I, I when I did my training, one of the one things I don't ask clients, and it's a it's actually been literally drummed out of me, is to actually ask even the question why. You know, the, it tends to do two things. If we say to somebody, "Why did you do this?" or "Why did you do that?" it tends to bring up Either we justify why we've done it, which just entrenches it more even, you know, it, it, it sets up its own sort of precedence. Or, so we either justify it or we go into, in, we, we become defensive about it or we intellectualise it. Yes, yes. Or we intellectualise why it's, we know, do what we do. Why, why did you do that is almost, why were you a naughty girl? Why were you a naughty boy? So it's a very... Power, it's, it's a very kind of power relationship issue question. Hugely. It can be punitive. There's no point in even asking that question. No, so I think the way that you ask, and, and it's exactly like what I do when I work with clients. It's no, it's no. There's, um, it's very similar. The the reality is we're dealing with people who, like you said, we can't take out the the neurophysiological. We can't, you know, take out the neurobiology. We can't rule all of that out. But nor are we operating in silos as humans. So it's just, yeah. you know, drug use is so multifactorial, so is trauma, and so is, you know, mental health. Yeah. I yes. don't think this, we, we it, yeah. It's so so the relationship between the, exactly, the relationship between the needle, resilience, and the fist. Yes. Yeah. Because I'm using that rescue, what's, what's that triangular model? The victim, the perpetrator, and the rescuer, yeah? And the rescuer, yeah. The, yeah, the, I, I um, like that triangular relationship. Triangular. Yeah, but it's yeah. so, so true think, when we see it. Yeah, yeah. So we've, we've identified the problem. What's the cure? Well, whenever we take, you know, I think I've touched on this before, that, you know, if, if so much of what's going on for us is running on some sort of unconscious level, and I, I, I mean, I hear various stats about this. I'd love to know what you, what you see, but you know, anywhere from you know five to fifteen percent of what you know drives our behaviour is actually uh, unconscious. Sorry, um, five to fifteen percent is the is the conscious behaviour, and everything else is unconscious. But once we bring yeah. whatever is you know unconscious to the conscious, we then can't you know climb under the disguise of oh I didn't know or I didn't see it. So often, like when I, when I track things, I tend to track things using like a, a bit of a genogram uh, when I'm, I'm doing family work. 
But essentially, it's around even just pausing and, and stopping to, you know, it's ironic. Sometimes I, I imagine that we can play our lives out on a DVD and I'll actually, you know, hit pause. I, I do this when I've got clients who have got like panic attacks or anxiety or something and I'll ask them to imagine that they've got their full on symptoms at their, at their greatest. And then as if we can, in a DVD, rewind increment by increment and just notice what's happening until we get to the very beginning. And usually it's before anything else goes on that we'll start to go, what's happening there? And there's usually a, it's like a, a switch flicks with their cognitions or a switch flicks with their belief. And if I can get them back to that, that's usually where there's a real opportunity for some like real self-awareness to go, oh my gosh, I never really realized. Because I think what happens is everything happens so quickly that we don't know where, we don't know how to get back to the beginning because we're so busy in the thick of it, especially if we've got all the physiological symptoms taking over as well. It's very hard to uh, be able to kind of roll it back and work out where does it all actually start. And where does it start usually? Usually in a traumatic childhood. Yeah, and, and it's this reenactant. So, I mean, the work that I do tends to be kind of deeper, deeper level work where I do use a lot of, you know, as I said, either EMDR or EFT, where we actually go back and yeah. change things, change things at the time where the decision was actually made. And, you know, transactional analysis use that when I talk about redecision theory, like redecision therapy. So it's, yeah, it's another... The more and more I do this work, the more and more I realise that there's often an interplay of the same work, just using different words and sort of different ways of actioning that to give people relief from the symptoms that they most want to get away from. <laughs> okay, so uh, as usual, we've run out of time far too quickly. <laughs> Can you give one message of hope to someone who has been traumatised and who is using drugs? What we, know, what we know is the capacity of the brain, when we talk about neuroplasticity, the ability of the brain to change its, you know, to change the way it operates as far as restructuring and its functioning. With the right help, there is, you know, treatment is, it's so, the research is so compelling out there for EMDR, EFT, um, other sorts of even cognitive behavioural therapy. People do not have to suffer. Change is possible. And it can be for the better. Change is possible. Change is possible. Recovery is possible. Very much so. Marie, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for watching. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong. See you next time.